Welcome to Strength in the Numbers. My name is Andrew Codd, accountant, author, and commercial finance entrepreneur. And it's my job each week to bring you leaders in finance and business and deconstruct with them their real stories, insights, and hard-won lessons into practical advice on the key strengths and qualities you need to remain relevant in accounting and finance today, as well as the steps you can begin to take to elevate the impact you make to have a fun, successful, and rewarding career in accounting and finance. Now let's go over to the show. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's Strength in the Numbers. Today I'm delighted to share a rather special guest with you. His name is Tom Fensel, he's CFO at PriceFX, which some of you might have heard as a leading software as a service based price management optimization and quoting business. And it's a pleasure to share Tom with you today because I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to pricing. That's where my own career has, has moved towards. So it's fantastic to have an expert come on the show and deconstruct where pricing and finance can come together to go and drive more value in the organizations we support to help us begin to be able to better influence and drive impactful decisions, meaningful decisions within our organizations too. So during our conversation, Tom asks, but also helps us answer the question, who is responsible for pricing? We deconstructed three dimensions of pricing and where us as finance professionals and, and accountants can drive each one of those. Our conversations broadens out a bit into the important qualities as, of good finance professionals. And Tom shares an excellent tip on being able to learn quickly. Tom's also a big technology fan. So there's some ideas on how we can better adopt technology within finance and our businesses to streamline processes and take a bit of cost out of things. And one of my favorite discussions was the important distinction between value and cost and how one can help you maximize or optimize where the other one you can only really minimize and how in finance we tend to focus on the minimization of the smaller cost element and sometimes avoid spending more time on the pricing element which allows us to drive more value something you can maximize and optimize and for those of you that are interested in some of the resources mentioned there's some great books Tom calls out at the end and I would encourage you to go check out and read during the year ahead. So I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did uh, having it together with Tom. If you did you can check out ways to connect with Tom, detailed timestamp show notes, transcripts and links to the resources mentioned and much more at sidnshow.com and we really appreciate you investing your time with us today so I think that's enough for me so without further ado over to Tom and the show. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me. It's, it's our pleasure. And I'm really delighted to get to chat to you again. Uh, our last conversation was really good fun. And I know we were joking about uh, that if we just recorded it, we pretty much have this podcast done already. But before we jump into the podcast, would you mind maybe just uh, sharing a brief story of your journey in accounting finance with our audience, please? Sure, of course. I've been doing finance for 25 years now. Feels shorter, but the time flies when you're having fun. I have a little bit of a checkered past, if you will. The way I ended up in financial management is not necessarily sort of the typical career. I didn't go through the sort of corporate uh, structures and so forth. I first started after college, I started in commercial banking. Actually, while I was at college, I, I was actually briefly in, at the Ministry of Finance in Prague. So I even worked for the government in financial function. After banking career, which I didn't find very satisfactory, I moved to London 
and I worked for two years for a corporate finance consulting firm that was very interesting, uh, sort of conceptually, didn't find entirely gratifying the consulting role, but the substance matter was very interesting. It was actually economic value-added, EBA. Some of your listeners might be, might be mm, sort of familiar yeah. with that concept. So it was a very interesting, especially for my sort of early years, to kind of get into the depth of uh, some of the concepts there. I went to take my MBA in the US afterwards. And after MBA, I went to work on Wall Street for about five years. So investment banking, and from investment banking, I moved to private equity. I was working those back in Prague, the Czech Republic, and I worked for a, a boutique private equity firm. And that's really how I ended up in financial management because one of our portfolio companies, this is 2009, so the great recession, and one of our portfolio companies got into trouble. And the partners at the firm had to say goodbye to CEO and they kind of said like, well, Tom, it sort of is your responsibility. So, <laughs> so why don't you go and sit in his chair? And, and it was scary as it was at that time, but it was a great experience. And I landed in this job and I really enjoyed the change of roles, the, the transition from what traditionally is more maybe transaction oriented aspect of finance to the more sort of managerial responsibility was great change. And I've been doing it in one way or another ever since. And I suppose, Tom Ogekduk, thanks for a very honest and open journey. And for some of our audience as well, might have picked up on your accent is Czechoslovakia. That's where you originally hailed from. And you've now worked in Europe, British Isles, over in America. You're in Chicago now. Been to China, been to Israel, been to all sorts of places. It's it's just, you have a really great perspective to share. And and I do want to get into the pricing side of things because I'm a a passionate pricer now myself, but I do want to get to that. But but before I do, in terms of preparing yourself from going from that transactional mindsets all the way to the strategic uh, mindset and having that responsibility, I suppose you didn't have time to prepare yourself by the sounds of it. How do you adjust to that new environment of having all this additional responsibility? Well, I guess you have to learn really quickly. And this is something that I tell people when I hire them, or this is even a sort of criteria when I'm looking for people to join the team is you obviously want people that are smart. That's kind of important, but you're also looking for people who just are naturally curious and they want to learn and want to sort of challenge themselves. And I think that quality is important for finance professionals as much as uh, anything. And in terms of then how can you learn quickly? Well, you have to be willing to listen to other people and observe and analyze and and, and digest that. And yeah, and then and you just jump into the water and you swim <laughs> or not. Well, I know, and that's why I appreciate you coming on the show because a lot of our listeners are already parted away there. You know, the fact that they're listening to our conversation, a bit curious, willing to learn more, observe, learn understand what can be done also what to avoid <laughs> as well the pitfalls yeah um, the one thing that it, it's sort of an interesting insight i think is that in many of these situations and i've been not now at price effects thank goodness but before i've been in some very hairy situations and the one thing that i've learned uh, relatively early on is it's just you move fast you sort of i think it was churchill who said that if you walk through hell you keep walking uh, and I have the Tom's addition to that and walk as fast as you can, right? You just don't <laughs> want to dwell on the hell and you just want to move through. So moving fast is another sort of tool too. 
That's a brilliant one, actually. I have to say, I, 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 that's a nice addition to Ch- Churchill's statement. <laughs> so if you're ill, yeah, don't dwell too long. Move as fast as you can. And, yeah. and I, I suppose that's an interesting one for finance because historically we're the ones that are trying to put the brakes on something sometimes, you know. So then we need to understand the risks here. How have you found uh, being able to manage that trade-off between taking time to analyze the risks and actually being proactive and moving forward? Great question. And I would attribute some of my views here very much to the early part of my career. So even though I'm happy to move from the sort of transaction side of business to management, I think that I've learned something there, particularly the investor perspective on things, right? So what investors are looking at and and if they're doing good job, then they want to create value, right? And there are just different ways to create value, but in the end, you still just count the dollars or euros or whatever it is. And and so as an investor, you're indifferent whether you created value by cost cutting or by increasing revenue or increasing margins. But when you then do the math, you realize there's only so much you can create by cost cutting because eventually you <laughs> just run out of things to cut. But you can always create more in terms of growth and, and improving efficiency and, and so forth. And so to answer your question about risks, I think that you have to, right? As a finance person, mm-hmm. you are the goalkeeper. You have to think about risks. But I think that you want to avoid being boxed in only the negative side of the equation, right? So you want to also say, well, you know, we can mitigate that particular risk by maybe creating more value here and it will sort of create a defensive buffer, right? So if I make more money here, I can then afford to take some losses over here. So I've been always mm. trying to, and and I often then hear from my colleagues that I'm not a traditional CFO, so I'm not a traditional CFO, I guess. <laughs> but but I've always trying to kind of take the holistic view and not like just like some mumbo jumbo, but truly as, you know, take as broad of a view as you can, where is the value in this situation where you are and how can you maximize it and that can be cost-cutting but it can often and often is not cost-cutting but other measures yeah because it's interesting that's one massive take we had from our last conversation was if you look at a cost there's only really one mindset you can take with cost we're not known for maximizing cost but we're very good at minimizing it but you can only go so far because cost is generated from activities we're currently doing we're doing current activities generating costs and you can only really minimize cost if you want to be a successful uh, business. Whereas uh, when you look at value, it doesn't make sense to minimize value. It's not what we're paid to do. <laughs> it's more of va- maximize value. And, and there's more to go with it. You're talking revenue margin, you know. And then there is another kind of angle to this, uh, which is we obviously review budgets, right? You know, that's part of what we do as finance. And, and often we laugh at when people say, well, we're going to invest in marketing, right? And often that's just like a corporate speak for we're going to just throw some money out of the window, right? You're a safe company here. There's no marketeers, I think, listening. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, I, I said it on purpose because I want to challenge that mindset. And I said, okay, well, how about we actually take our colleagues at the word, right? You're saying you're going to invest into you know, new headcount. Okay, great. Show me how it is an investment. So show me what is the efficiency that you're going to gain or what is the increase. And then my answer would be, yes, sure. Of course, let's spend the money as long as it's not just throwing it out of the window, but it actually is an investment. But what it often means that, uh, and and that's what I said earlier about getting out of the, you know, the, the box we're put in, 
we need to be the ones leading the conversation, right? We need to be the one asking the right questions. And and do you need this much money? And recently, I, I read somewhere an interesting article about budgeting, and it advised that you should actually ask the question, well, what about we spend twice as much, right? And often the answer is, you know, well, I don't know. I don't want twice as much. I just want a little bit more, right? It's like, no, no. What if we like, can, can you do something? And obviously you have to follow up with the question. What if we do half of it, right? <laughs> Would it still it work, would, right? Yeah. And the point is that too often we play these games on a margin. And I think that the the thing that I would encourage everyone, I certainly try to do it. And 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 I think it's something that is rewarding in a, in, a, in a sense that it's intellectually stimulating, but it's also great responsibility is not to fall into the deep tracks, right? Not to just kind of, you know, tweak things at the margin and just assume what was done yesterday, you know, just can only be improved a little bit, but really ask the tough questions and, and see where the value can be created. And then often there are like opportunities. Yeah, see, I think that plays rather well, Tom, because that's a really good challenge for audience. We shouldn't, you know, try not to be safe and play at the margins. I think that's probably more in our nature. Uh, you know, I mean, how many of us have looked backwards to see what the run rate was on an expense and use that to guide uh, forward and it might go up or down a little bit. But what if we were to do 2x and then you're getting into the, the situation of, OK, where's the, the diminishing marginal returns on this? You know, how exactly. far can you push the budget before you get you start losing that efficiency effect? And the other benefit that you get from this is that often some of my finance colleagues are, they tell me that their aspiration is to be more strict. Well, well, how do you become more strategic other than by being strategically relevant, right? So when you're not going to be strategically relevant, if you're only going to assume that what is, is what is and cannot be anything else. So by doing this analysis, you just mentioned, Andrew, what can happen is that you actually stumble on an answer. Well, we can't do that because, and, and it may be a good reason why we can't do that, but that because often indicates something else that's happening strategically around you, whether it's internal or external. And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, you're a finance person and you're contributing uh, strategic insights. I just try to think, I just you got some of our audience members out thinking, okay, some of us started the year, just maybe even some of us kicking off budget cycles or whatever. It's like, all right, I'm, I'm going to go and ask my budget holder, what could they do if we gave them 2x the budget, you know? And then like that, you see their eyes light up. What, you got to give me all this extra money? So no, not yet. But tell me how you what you would do if you had this extra don't money. Don't spend it but, just yet. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's typical finance. Yeah, don't spend it. But, that's, uh, but then that gets into the second piece, which is I see finance professionals into the future being more like sparring partners, just trying to bring the best out of the person they're sparring with, right? That's what a sparring partner is. You're not there to beat them up. You're there to try and help them take a few uh, punches, throw some good ones themselves and learn a bit more about themselves so they're stronger, better prepared, more resilient. But that's probably, I mean, that's why I liked your, your question. That's really great advice, Tom. Is there, I suppose, from another perspective, you know, what's exciting you most about your current work? Maybe just by way of introduction, what we do is, is we do pricing software. What it really is or big part of is is part of the broader digitalization uh, of business processes uh, trend. And um, it's new to me. I've been with PriceFX for a little over three years. Before that, I was more into traditional industries, uh, not not software. And coming from that sort of more traditional sectors, it's just mind-boggling, right? It's just mind-boggling how fast the changes are happening, what is the impact, And we really have a front row seat of that. So the transformation that digital technologies and there's just a ton of software out there available for all sorts of business processes. 
is really opens new doors and and I think that finance people should be paying attention to that and should be thinking how they can leverage those technologies because um, it will empower them. I, I suppose look for our audience you don't realize as well like my background is I run a deal making team I work very close with sales pricing is very important understanding margin and so on and I think I, I liked it our conversation the last time how we sort of bucketed it into three main areas yeah would you mind sort of maybe sharing what those areas are with some of our audience who might not be as familiar with the pricing end-to-end cycle? Sure, of course. So uh, pricing, maybe let's just take a step back. So every business needs to set prices, right? However, it becomes a sort of a standalone discipline when complexity creeps in and, and all of a sudden you need the specialist to, to manage that. The complexity generally tends to come in two forms, one, the other, or, or both which is either you have complex setup, complex organization. Typically, this would be, you know, you have a long list on the price list. You have a long price list of many, many SKUs. You may have different channels. You may have different locations you ship goods to and so forth. And all these things obviously affect the end price that you need to charge. You may also have discounts on the invoice, off invoice, and all that kind of stuff that you're familiar with. The basic logic of what the management or financial management of the company is trying to do is relatively straightforward, but to actually keep it all together is a complex exercise. Historically, this would have been relegated to often even relatively large teams working with Excel and pen pen and paper. And generally that's slow and prone to errors and, and you cut corners all sorts of ways. And so replacing that with a kind of modern SaaS uh, cloud-based uh, architecture it really allows you to do the same thing much faster, more reliably. And, and that's one source of value of software like ours or the industry is, is sort of moving that way. I have an example here, by the way, one of our, one of our customers, I'm not going to name, but they had, when we came in, this is years ago, but they had, I believe, something like 300,000 SKUs on their list. And uh, this was automotive aftermarket right? That these are parts that are uh, created for a warehouse. And then you wait if, if someone needs the part and, and you ship it to them, right? And they were repricing annually. And because there were so many of those parts and they didn't have any good software for that. So like, how are we going to do that? So some smart consultant told them 80-20 rule. So take the top 20% of the SKUs that create 80% of the value or revenue or what have you, do your exercise on it. And the rest of it just increase the price of inflation or something, right? <laughs> so they did that for a couple of years. And then they realized that every year they ended up scrapping, physically scrapping a bunch of parts because they were overpriced. They were just priced out of the market. Unreal. When we implemented our software, the cost of our software was less than what was the physical cost of physically destroying, removing and destroying, scrapping. So forget like lost value and, you know, opportunity cost. No, 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 we're talking, we saved them the fact that they didn't have to uh, physically scrap the the parts that were not moving. And of course there was a lot more value downstream. So there is a impact shift from what traditionally were business processes. And when I say traditionally, we're not talking 20, 30 years ago, we're talking, you know, eight years ago, five years ago, right? The things are really changing really, really fast. So that's price setting or that's price management. 
this price optimization is the second sort of area that that uh, we operate in, which would be the sort of all sorts of algorithms around optimization problems. Optimization problems generally are multivariant problems, right? So you're trying to, rather than just solve for one linear linear problem, but you're trying to kind of optimize for multiple uh, variables at the same time. Typically, this would be things like, I want to increase revenue without losing margin, or I may want to increase uh, profits without sacrificing volume and all these yes. kinds of uh, constraint problems. So that would be the second area. And, and, the, and the third area is what you were kind of alluding to, which is setting up quotes. So this would be a situation where, where typically pricing is a centralized function in corporations, right? So somewhere in the headquarters, there would be one guy or a team of people who would basically set the price list for everyone and, and then cascade it down to the organization. That works for many areas, but then when you, and we operate predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly in the B2B space, right? So our customers don't sell typically to retail, but they're to retail customers, to consumers, but they sell to other businesses. And in that space, you don't just sell off priceless. It's negotiation with the salespeople are, oh, are, yeah. are doing. And not only, they don't negotiate about in the individual item, but they negotiate a, a, a basket of, of an order. So customer wants not just one thing, but they want a group of things. And, and the salesperson needs to, at that point, say, okay, I can sell this to you for X. And that X typically is some sort of a discount off the price list. But how big of a discount? Well, uh, maybe it depends on what was the discount you sort of given to a similar customer with a similar order in some other region. And you may want to know that. Well, in the traditional setup, you couldn't. Right? In traditional setup, all you do is I, I have a right to give you 5% discount. Anything above that, I have to run up the chain. And that takes weeks. We had customers who, before they started with us, they would typically do a quote or RFP. Right? RFP is another sort mm -hmm. of similar situation. They would take three weeks to complete it. Not because they are stupid, but because they take so many people and so many sort of movement of information. Well, you've put all of that into one system, you can have it in five minutes or 15 minutes, just kind of run through the algorithms and you're done and you make the decision and you move on. So and that's the great thing about the algorithms now, making. isn't it? Sorry. I, it's, as I was going to say about the algorithms now, they're so getting so advanced that they, they learn as you're going along and incorporates win losses and you get into a sense of elasticity. So you're actually taking that information, constantly learning and, and driving better business chances for better business forward. So it's like taking all that data and rather than just leaving it sit there, doing something with it. I agree. But just to kind of not to scare uh, folks, <laughs> listen, I'm not necessarily promoting the logic and it may come. It, we may get to a point where machines will take over even here. What we're seeing is not necessarily machine taking over people's jobs. It's much more that they, what we can do is eliminate the delays that are yeah. historically inserted only because you just don't have the right decision makers at the same time in the same place. So you may be right that one day we'll come to algorithms replacing <laughs> people, but we can certainly speculate about how that world's going to look like. But in our experience, we're not yet there. What we're doing is replacing rigid rules that are sort of bureaucratic rules with more of a sort of a market uh, market driven rules right so uh, for example i can tell a salesperson that they cannot price above 
certain branch or outside of certain branch of what other transactions have been. And, and historically, if they didn't see it, what those transactions were, but how do they know? Tell yeah, them, exactly. You know, that's, that's the band. And the band can be dynamic, as you said, because over time dynamic. that's changing. So yes, that would be the but it's cool because it just means we're leaving less money on the table. And I think that's where I got like traditionally, like I'm an accountant. I would never have thought I would have got into the, the, this pricing world, but it's actually quite cool because you're taking a lot of the training, like even down to reconciliations, reconciling price books. Are you sort of saying the price management setting process? It's always important to make sure we're quoting the right prices we set. And if there's a disconnect in the system, we could be leaving money on the table. Same with the sort of the more dynamic pricing as well. It's just making sure that things are working as we'd anticipate and making sure. And, he, and even if that didn't exist, we could start creating systems like that by setting better governance and learning from it in terms of what's working and what's not working. It's just feeding that learning back into the system. It's funny you mention your own sort of transition here, because one of the things that I've been saying for a while is that when I first came to PriceFX, one of my earlier questions to my colleagues was, so who in the C-suite owns pricing, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. And <laughs> I kind of got like, it looks like may, maybe the head of sales, maybe that's not the right person, maybe head of marketing, maybe that's not the right. And then someone invariably would say like, well, it's the CEO, right? Uh, because these are responsible for everything. I was like, okay, well, that's yeah. great. That's a, it's a, it's a yeah. great, it's really helpful. <laughs> out, out, out of the jail, out of the jail card, right? But so I said, you know, Maybe I'm biased, but I said, why not the CFO? <laughs> and yeah, it is true that with some of our customers, that is the ultimately the CFO, but it's not typical. And I think it's a real shame. I would suggest that folks, if they are thinking about advancing their career and jumping on this digitalization trend, and, and, and as we discussed earlier uh, today, is being more strategic. That focusing on how your company does pricing and how you as a CFO or a finance manager, how you are involved in the process and how, what visibility you have. And, and there is just um, so much that a finance person can do here that it would be a real shame to pass on. Yeah, no, I think that's a really great challenge to set out there, Tom. And I'd add to that is back in those days, we used to do budgets and costs and so on. And, and like, Cost is only one part of the PL. It's actually, if you think about it, the bigger part of the PL is that piece at the top, the revenue right. uh, and driving margin there. So if you want to make a more like budgeting to a degree is important and managing costs is important, yes. But if you want to make a bigger impact or more meaningful impact, sustainable, stay relevant in the longer term, you wouldn't go far wrong by by uh, enhancing the pricing, understanding and skills and, and where you can add value there. And the other thing here is, which I would say that sometimes as finance people we're guilty of, is we're thrown a PL, right? And it's just a bunch of numbers. And revenue is one number, and maybe gross margin is one number. But in reality, okay, maybe you have business units, right? But there are segments, there are channels, there's all the. If we as finance people don't go and ask those questions and just leave it to whatever sells or whoever to manage that, that's our loss, right? What we should really be doing is understand how is the margin different between not just different business units, but within the given business between different segments, geographies and all that. And, and what drives it? Why is it different? Is it different because the cost structure is different? Is it different because pricing is different? I mean, when you go back to college and, and when you did your econ one-on-one, 
those were all the things that you were you were saying like yeah this is great this is what economics is all about and then all of a sudden yeah. you become an accountant and you forget you know <laughs> adam smith you know yeah <laughs> so pull back adam smith yeah. you know and start start applying these uh, sort of basic economics thinking into the financial management because that really no, I did, belongs I there no, exactly. I think you're completely right, Tom. Look, you've been giving us fantastic advice. I'd be curious to know, though, what's been the best bit of advice you've ever received? I'd say that the best advice that I receive is, and this goes a little bit uh, back to what we discussed earlier about how, as finance people, we kind of search for truth and, and for a sort of deeper understanding and sort of learning. And I think that's absolutely critical. But I think that the best advice I received, um, best in a sense that I, I wasn't expecting it, was important as that truth searching inclination is, it's also important to be able to sit back and listen to other people. Because as the dogs of war of sort of getting to the truth, we could sometimes trample on other people who are maybe less, less sort of forthcoming. And if you want to ultimately get to the truth, you need to get multiple perspectives. You need to get perspectives from a wider range of people. And so I'd say that was something I didn't expect to, to, to hear. And I did well when I finally learned to listen to that advice. That's great. And again, I think our listeners, our audience are ahead of the game by getting these multiple perspectives from the guest mentors we have on the show, Tom. Absolutely. So, so you're talking to a good audience here. They, they know what they're about, but you know the thing that's really impressive with this, and I think it's as I've got older. If someone told me that when I was younger, I said, yeah, right, whatever. But as I got older, I really appreciate those extra perspectives because I always felt that I needed to know the answer myself. And it was only when I sort of embraced the fact that like now as a leader of teams in multiple continents, it's like you value those perspectives. It's a balance. Obviously, you don't want to take too long and right. you know and paralysis by analysis but actually having those additional perspectives helps you get to a, a better version of the truth I, that's what i feel yes i would uh, i guess you I, feel that too i would sign that yes and then i suppose the next question i'd have for you tom would be more about resources what resources or maybe book or, or whatever would you turn to maybe we recommend our audience uh, go check out so uh, there's a bunch of different resources the one kind of old-fashioned media that i would Sort of remind people it's out there if you forgot about it. It's The Economist magazine. So uh, I recently subscribed again after many, many years of being absent and, and I actually subscribed to the printed version. So uh, as well as the digital one. So that there's something there. It's a still good media in today's world where a lot of the media diet that we consume is, is not something to recommend yeah. yeah can i ask you about that one tom actually i used to be a subscriber myself or well, you know probably 15 20 years ago is it i, I say yeah so it's not like that fake news we have now going yeah, so, so i mean it's actually quite credible you think I don't want to get too deep into this question, but I mean, it's, it's probably too much to ask any sort of media outlet to be completely without bias. And, and you know, if you've been around and seen the world that you can discern what the bias perhaps is, but it is remarkable. And I have to say, particularly about the similarly long absence from consuming is that they still are, and I would say similar to, let's say, BBC as a sort of a broadcasting station they are still maintaining a remarkably high standards. So I would Great. say that as someone who suffers from sort of not being able to procure a good source of sort of journalism, I would say that's a bright spot. More on the book side, it won't entirely surprise your listeners maybe, but the book that I recommend 
is the Sapiens from Noel Harari. And the reason why I recommend it is precisely because it gives you a very broad perspective on including economic development, right? So it has a little bit of economics and it is not just sort of historical treaty, but it really brings together how the whole evolution of how we got to be where we are has to do with us, what makes us as humans inside. His notion that money is religion is something that at first, when I first uh, saw it, I was like, you know, what a bunch of BS. And then you you read a chapter. If you want to start with just one chapter, read that chapter. And you're like, come out of it, eyes wide open. And you're like, wow, this guy actually has something meaningful to say. And and I think it's it's a great book. And it's a great challenge to what too often is a, these days, most of us probably are, sort of so busy with work and, and so kind of narrowly focus on, on on just looking at the one thing that we need to deal with that that having this sort of zoom out moment when you look at the entire it's it's about 350 pages not that big of a yeah. book and it covers the whole human history <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's really good at that isn't it it's a very fascinating story and it's something that helps provide perspective but i have more books if you want <laughs> Yeah, for our audience who aren't going to watch a video on this, Tom's got a great collection of books. <laughs> I, mean, we were far, I was firing off a couple there last time and it's just like, like wow, you know, yeah, we've, we've come across some good ones. Uh, that's a great one. And I actually say, I second what you suggest because it does take us on a fascinating download of history and human development in one book, you yep. know, and uh, you can get through it in, in a few hours, but like it's really good. And I like the section on, on commerce and on money. I think it explains a lot about people's behavior, <laughs> you know, uh, we haven't developed that much if we're going back, but did you have a chance to read his follow on Homo Deus, I think, or something? Homo Deus and then 21 Lessons for 21st Century. Uh, yeah, I read both of those. They're good. I would say that if people were to read just one book, it's definitely Sapiens. Yeah, start with that one. And I, But I did like the forward looking questions on the 21st, uh, uh, was it the questions for the 21st century or something like that, wasn't it? Or 21 Lessons or something. If you are more interested or your listeners are interested more in future looking books, then I would probably Max Tegmark's uh, Life 3.0 is the one that I would recommend. Oh. Uh, he's a Swedish physicist, and I believe he uh, is at MIT, if I'm not mistaken. He talks a lot about AI. Uh, and it's some scary reading there, for sure. Yeah. So uh, for orders, I will make sure we get the proper links of those books in the show notes. Yes. Just so I get the right names. Great recommendations. Thanks, Tom. And I suppose if our audience wish to continue the conversation, where's the best place to connect with you at? So I guess as, as far as what we do at PriceFX and PriceFX.com is an easy place to go. In terms of my own personal sort of profile, I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. Look for Tom Fensel at LinkedIn. I have a pretty decent real estate there in terms of my name as being the, the easily searchable. And I am on Twitter too, but um, not super active. And that's probably demonstrated by the fact that I don't remember my handle, but uh, happy to provide it to you later. Take it out. <laughs> but I, I, I don't know. That I don't know that you need to follow me from there. Awesome. Well, Tom, we'll put those links into the show notes as well. And I suppose, look, you know, I, I, we, could, we could talk. It's like, it's obviously, it's early or Friday, late my Friday, but we could talk and talk. I feel like grabbing a beer next, but I want to be respectful of your time. So look, if, if for audience, would you perhaps have any parting thoughts before we wrap up? I think we covered the great topics. Maybe the only thing I would say is finance is exciting. 
it's more exciting now than it was even a few years ago, precisely because of all the things that with technology you can do these days. And yeah, and I would say that be, be bold. There's definitely something exciting to do and, and interesting to learn. Awesome. Well, well, Tom, really appreciate having a chat again. Fantastic advice, great resources, great points. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me, Andrew. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to know more about our guests today, their bio, and follow up on the resources mentioned during the show, you can find all the relevant links and more at sitnshow.com. There you'll also be able to get access to earlier shows, read the latest blogs. There's also an opportunity to subscribe to our newsletter, which will give you heads up as to when the next show is coming out, latest events, news, and anything that's going to be relevant to help you have a fun, rewarding, and successful career in finance and accounting. And just before you go, we really appreciate your feedback. If there's something we can do better on the show, something that's not working, or something you'd like to see, even a guest you'd like for us to invite onto the show, someone who you think might be able to benefit you more and also the rest of our community, please let me know. You can email me. I'm at andrew at sitnshow.com or feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Just drop me a message so I know how you found me and we can connect. And really, it's our community that will make the show. If we keep engaging and driving each other on, we'll keep on building our strength in the numbers. When all is said and done, if we can do the numbers better and finance better, we'll create more opportunities for ourselves, our friends, our families, our communities and our businesses. So until next time, have a good rest of the week. Take care and let's keep building our strength in the numbers.